It is a privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, I see some unfamiliar faces, so uh, if we haven't met, my name is David. I get to serve as one of the pastors here, and today we're continuing on in our series, as you can see, First Love, Recovering Delight in the Lord, Recovering not just delight, but devotion. And so today we're particularly looking at Duty and Resolve. That's the title of this sermon, Duty and Resolve. It's not easy to discuss or even to preach to this end because the Word of God is clear. And it's our responsibility to avail ourselves to it. But I trust that the Spirit of the Lord is already at work. And for example, none of you know this but me right now. This morning... I felt compelled to introduce this sermon with a text that I'm not preaching from, Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 2. I was going to ask Ben to speak directly from that this morning in the call to worship, but I decided not to ask him and to let the Spirit move. And do you know what Ben read this morning? Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 2. I trust that he wants to speak to us this morning, church. I trust it. We've seen in the book of Revelation that he walks among the seven lampstands. He's here. He's here. And he wants to speak to us. And so if you've come this morning just to feel good or to maybe appease your conscience, then you shouldn't even be here. But if you want to see the risen Lord Jesus, he's going to speak to us because his word is clear. And I'm going to give you nothing but what is obvious and clear from the word of Christ. And so, if you will, turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 is going to serve as the bones of this sermon, but we're going to be moving to Matthew 21 for the flesh. In light of what Ben read this morning from Isaiah 66, I want to remind you that today is an opportunity to come hungry and humble. We get to see the Almighty move in our midst. We need to be made uncomfortable. Our sensibilities need to be assaulted. Our feathers need to be ruffled and our egos need to be slayed. If not, we will continue on deaf, dumb, and blind, ignorant of the ways of God. But, If we receive the word, he will move in our midst and he will reveal himself to us in a way that you have never seen. Let's read. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, People who have not soiled their garments, 
And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a continuation of an epistle that the Apostle John is writing to the seven churches. This particular church was in uh, the western part of modern-day Turkey. And you notice in the introduction, it says, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. For the sake of brevity, I'm not going to explain why John uses that language, but the seven spirits of God is simply the Holy Spirit. Okay? If you want to know why he's using that language, come talk to me afterwards. Uh, But basically, the one who has the spirit of God and the seven stars, the seven stars being the seven messengers or angels of these churches, okay? So the one writing to the churches is Jesus the Christ, the one who has the spirit of God upon him, who is the giver of that spirit and who holds the keys to all these churches. And he says, I know your works. I know your works. So this, we have three simple points from the text, three simple points that we'll make our way through. He knows our works. Our works are lacking. We must keep what we have received and heard. And before we continue, let's, let us pray that we might receive the spoken word. Father, please have mercy on us. We come before you now with open hearts and minds. We are availing ourselves before you. Your word says, heed what is written. That the one who has ears should hear what you are saying to the churches. I pray that we would hear you. I pray that we would see you. And that we would trust you all the while. Please, would no heart in this room be hardened to your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And a spirit to have resolve to do as you say. Please, we are your people for your possession. We are the sheep of your pasture. Would you have your way with us? You are our all in all. It's in the name of Christ I pray this now. Amen. The first point, he knows our works. We are exposed. We are exposed to the risen Christ. He is in our midst. He walks among us. This same thought ought to bring us comfort in times of affliction in times where the night seems longer than it should, in seasons of darkness in the soul, that he's with us. But this same thought ought to make us tremble because he's here and he sees us. He knows who we are. He knows who you are. He's not fooled by us. The things that we hide in the darkest depths of our being, 
the thoughts that cross our minds, the words we want to say to someone but don't, the things we hide from our spouses, our friends, and the family of God, he sees. He knows us. We are naked before the eyes of our maker. He sees what we do and what we don't do. In fact, Peter writes that he stands ready to judge both the living and the dead, and that judgment will actually start with the household of God. So ought we not to fear, church, that he sees the depth of our depravity? Turn with me now to Matthew chapter 21. In this portion of Matthew, Jesus had just cleansed the temple. He entered in and he pushed over tables and he cracked whips to, de- to declare that the house of the Lord would be a house of prayer for all the nations. And then he, he leaves the temple and he curses a fig tree. If you don't know much about figs or fig trees, you should know this. They produce an abundant fruit. I personally frequented a fig tree in college. It had so much fruit you couldn't keep up with it. All right? I ate a lot of figs from this particular tree. So Jesus discovers a fig tree that has no fruit, and he curses it. That tree is symbolic of Israel. After he curses this tree, it withers. And so then he's confronted, and he's asked, by what authority do you do these things? Knowing the hearts of the religious leaders asking him this question, he asks them a question in response. He says, where is John the Baptist's baptism from? And the rulers, knowing that if they said, his is from heaven, then they would have guilt upon themselves because they are not obeying the baptism of John. But if they said his baptism is of man, the people would rage against them because the people saw John as a prophet. And so they say, we don't know. And Jesus says, then I won't tell you by what authority I teach and do these things. But then he answers them again with a parable. And this is where we're picking up. Matthew 21 in verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered him, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. 
The first son, let's take a look at each of these sons. The first son, though intending to disobey, intend, he intended to defy his father's commands. He actually obeys the command of his father. We're going to revisit the first son later in the sermon. But for now, we're going to, now we're going to move to the second son and focus primarily on him. The second son, however, gives lip service to his father and never committed to the works of obedience. Here's the thing about the second son. No reason is given for why he disobeyed. We don't know whether he intended to disobey all the while, for if so, he purposefully lied. Or perhaps it could be that he intended to obey. But then, you know, life happened. Perhaps he lost track of time. Perhaps another responsibility came up altogether. Or perhaps he felt that he could still obey his father by doing another activity or chore. Does this sound familiar? Jesus doesn't give us the details at all. Why? Because at the end of the day, the details don't matter. The details don't actually matter. The fact remains that the second son did not do the will of his father. He was disobedient, plain and simple. At the judgment between the two sons, at the judgment between these two sons, the second son is marked by one thing his disobedience. There is no excuse. There is no justification. There is no exception. He is judged not for what he did do, which was give lip service, but for what he did not do. Good intentions will not count for anything on the last day. Point two, our works are lacking. Our works are lacking. Jesus says in Revelation, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. I have not found them to be complete. The simple commands that the Lord gives us are not being obeyed. The works that we have been predestined to accomplish are not being done. When Jesus calls us to himself, he simply says this, follow me, follow me. In this call, Jesus establishes himself as the one who leads. He is the one taking control. He is the one guiding and showing us the way. He is the one who leads. And in doing so, he asserts himself as the son of God, as the son of man. He asserts himself as the master. It is he who mediates then between us and God the Father. And not just 
that. He's also the one who mediates between us and our fellow man. And also between us and the world. So let's, let's look specifically at that call. Because we won't understand our duty to obey if we don't understand the privileges and the rights that are the Lord's, that are the Lord's within our life. Jesus, as the one who leads, as Lord, as the one who gives the call, he becomes our very life. He becomes our life. Outside of him, we do not have God the Father. Outside of him, we do not have the Holy Spirit. And here's where it's going to hurt. I want you to hang on. And if you don't believe me, hang on a little bit longer and let the words of Jesus speak for themselves. Outside of him, we do not have a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a husband, a wife, a child, a grandchild, or even a friend. Outside of him, we do not know the world or even reality itself. He stands between us and everything. And he declares lordship over all that you are. You have nothing outside of him. If you don't believe that, then simply look to the precedent of Abraham and the fact that he is the father of our faith. He looked to his son Isaac as the fulfillment of promise. And yet, he looked to him for the sake of promise alone. And yet the Lord calls to Abraham, sacrifice your son. And it was only in his willingness to give up Isaac that he actually receives back Isaac. It's only in his willingness to put to death the very thing he loved that he gets it back. Because now he has it in Christ. Now he has his son in the Lord. And his son truly is the fulfillment of the promise because it is Christ who is the promise giver and the promise keeper. Outside of Christ, we don't know the world. He stands in the way. In Matthew, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring, pre- excuse me, bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus comes to us and he calls out and says, follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer noted that that call is both a call of grace and a command. It's a command because you are Ask to obey, follow, 
but it is grace to you because the Lord Jesus himself is reaching out and coming to you and saying, follow me. Should you accept the call, you are accepting death to self, death to your dreams and to your desires, death to the life you thought you knew. Death to the world. In following Jesus, he becomes our everything. We have nothing outside of him. He is our master, and as such, as such, it is our duty to obey all that he commands. In Luke 17, Jesus writes this, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We have only done what was our duty. church we we ought to be trembling I too am a man who is undone before the word and so this is not a preacher preaching a sermon but this is God speaking to his church let us have ears to hear it let us have ears to hear it we ought to be trembling who are we that we think we actually have a say in the life that the Lord hands us? If we belong to Christ, then we are no longer our own. We are no longer our own. Third point. We must keep what we have received and heard. Remember then, verse 3 in Revelation 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. This is a call from Jesus himself to say, look back to where you've come from. Are you currently caught in the deception of sin? Are you currently wayward? Are you currently living a life that is more characterized by self and sin than by the lordship of Jesus? Look back. Look back to where you have come from. Remember what you have received and heard. Keep it. Keep it and repent. Church, we, we must look back to where we've come from. We must remember the call of Jesus to follow him and to keep his commands. 
we must remember his pure, simple teachings, no matter the cost. No matter the cost. If you will, let's revisit now the parable of the two sons. And we're looking back at the first son. I'll read it again. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. He changed his mind and went. Did the first son's initial unwillingness to obey stain or compromise his later obedience? No. No. Because in changing his mind, he has truly repented. And, his, and is now solely acknowledged by Christ for his obedience. Do you see this? In changing his mind, he, he has truly repented. And he is now solely acknowledged by Christ for his obedience. The son repents and now welcomes his father's instruction. He obeys. He obeys. So you see, he is no longer the disobedient son. For in his genuine repentance, he has become the obedient son. Church, this is our hope. This is our hope. In the midst of our waywardness and our rebellion and our apathy, it is only true repentance that will set you free. It is only true repentance that will set you free. It is simply acknowledging, Jesus, you are the Christ. I believe that your words are true and I will obey. Help me to obey. Let the first son be our example this morning. Simple. It is simple. And yet, it is where true freedom lies in truly repenting and acknowledging Jesus as Lord. Some of you might ask, some of you might ask, how can my obedience be accepted if my heart is far off? It's a legitimate question. But I also think hidden in the question are assumptions about what love and affection look like. And so I want to briefly look at the relationship between love and the resolve to obey. Because we've seen our duty. We've seen the sheer duty we have as disciples to simply obey and to expect nothing more. And now as we look to resolve, we need to see the relationship between love and the resolve to obey. In John 14, 21, Jesus says, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, 
and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I'm going to read that again. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. That also means I will reveal myself to him. Our obedience to Christ is an expression of love to him per the scriptures. Our culture has corrupted the definition of love. I think many of us don't realize how much it has corrupted biblical love or even beyond the scope of the Bible how much of the ancient world looked at love. Because of this, we tend to look at love simply as, em- as an emotion. Simply as an emotion. And certainly love is emotive. True love will promote emotion. But it is not simply an emotion. C.S. Lewis describes in his book, The Four Loves, four different types of loves, wouldn't you know? And these are... Different Greek words that describe different types of love common within society. They will be familiar to you. Storge is a familial love. It's, one, it, it's the type of love that you would experience between family members, kinship, perhaps the love between a father and a son, or siblings, or love that is developed between a husband and a wife or ought to be developed between a husband and a wife. Next, we have philia. This is brotherly love. This is the love of friendship and camaraderie. This is why Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. That's what it's named for. And then we have eros, erotic love. Lewis points out, though, that it's not simply a sexual, animalistic love, but rather defines it as being in love, though society has corrupted that to be something that is overt sexually. I think there are probably several marriages in the room that started off on the wrong side of that love. It's not a condemnation, but it's just a simple fact. We all know what I'm talking about. And then you have the most common love in the Bible. Agape. You've undoubtedly heard of this love. And what's different about agape love is it's it's a sacrificial love. You see, storge, while genuine and oftentimes unconditional, it can be damaged. It can be damaged. You can get to a point where you no longer love your own kindred. Perhaps it's been abused and neglected. Perhaps it has been assumed. I think many of you have family members that just assume no matter what they do, you ought to treat them a particular way. And so in doing so, storge love is corrupted. Philia, love, the love between friends or or comrades, that's a love that genuine that typically arises when you have something in common with another 
you're not just friends with anybody. You typically pick your friends. You choose them. And when something sours the friendship, the philia goes away. Eros, we spoke briefly on that already. But it's this, again, the feeling of being in love with someone else. This particular love is what starts many a relationship. It's highly emotive, though. And as we all know, any of you who are married in the room, married for any amount of time, you change. Your spouse changes. How you view them changes. How they view you changes. And so a relationship bound only in eros is doomed to self-destruct. It takes a decision, then, to cultivate another kind of love. It takes resolve. Resolve to cultivate a much more deep love, say storge, but even a greater love, agape. And that is the love that is sacrificial and is bound to no circumstance, but is simply a choice. And it's in this kind of love that Jesus says, the one who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Because you have chosen Jesus. You have said, Jesus, you are the Christ and your words are true. He's worthy of everything. And his call is simple yet hard. Follow me. And it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. If obeying his commandments is an expression of love to him, we must know his commandments. You can't, you can't say that you love him or that you follow him and yet you don't know him. It's asinine and an insult, frankly, to who he is. Here's some... I'm not in the, I'm not in the business of cultivating false conviction. But I, I, I do think there are some things that help give us a, a temperature reading. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just ask some rhetorical questions to check the thermostat within our own hearts. How many of us say we know Jesus and believe on him, but we don't actually read his word? How many of us could say we have been a believer for years and years and have yet to read even the Bible cover to cover? How many of us disregard his instruction on how we ought to love our spouse because, well, he or she is crazy. You don't understand it, Lord. Or how many of us disregard the instruction on how to parent our children? Because, well, Lord, you don't understand. They might hate me. Or maybe I'll lose my relationship with them. How many of us refuse to talk to the mocker at our workplace or the neighbor we know hates the ways of God because, Lord, you, you just don't get it. I, I got to live next to this person. How many of us live like that? 
We're like the second son who gives lip service every week. And yet we go about living for our own interests, our own decisions, submitting nothing to the Lordship of Jesus. And I'm saying today is an opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. Today is an opportunity to be like the first son and repent. Choose life. Choose life. And you will no longer be marked by your disobedience. But in genuine repentance, the Lord will say, which one of you have obeyed? And the answer will be clear. Because we have turned from sin and self and we have looked in the face of Jesus and said, I trust you. I trust you. I will obey. Help me to obey. In regarding love again, most of you should know the greatest commandment. When asked about it, Jesus shares the Shema. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. When we view that commandment in light of the world's definition of love, it's almost intangible, isn't it? What does it mean to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Many of good teachers have used that to, if you will, say, well, all of your emotion, all of your intellect, all of your will. And I think that's right. But I think when we look at it as a choice to obey, all of a sudden, the love that we ought to have has feet. It's something that actually we know what it now looks like because it is a love that is choosing to obey. So do you want to fulfill the greatest commandment? Do you want to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you want to love your neighbor as yourself? Then commit. Commit to following Jesus and his commands. And here's the promise. Here's the promise from John 14, 21. In return, from your simple obedience, your simple commitment to love him and your, let, letting your obedience be your love, you get this in return. The Father will love you. And the Son will both love you and will reveal himself to you. In choosing to obey him, you will see him. Undoubtedly, many of you know, oftentimes the Christian life feels like you're wandering in a desert by yourself. You don't know up from down, left from right. And it seems that all is lost. And yet our, our hope, our hope is responding much like Peter does. Who else will we go to, Lord? To whom else will we turn? No matter the darkness of night, his word will be clear. His word will be clear. And even if you don't know 
immediately what obedience looks like. Commit to it, and he will show you. Commit to it. Express your love to him by committing to his word, and he will reveal himself to you. It's such a promise. In choosing to obey him, that is, in choosing to love him, you will see him. You will see him. And this is the most glorious truth of it all. In seeing him, you will see his beauty, his radiance, his goodness, his loveliness, his majesty, his holiness, and his glory. Because you have set your heart to obey him, when you see him, you will love him and trust him all the more. You will love him and trust him all the more. Take him up on his word. Take him up on his word. Do you want to see him? Draw near in obedience. Do not pay attention to what the world or to the mockers or to, or to what sin and self say. Put down the idols. Leave the distractions and seek him. And simply obey. Meet him on his terms. In the book of Job, towards the, in the second half, if you're familiar with the book of Job, Job was considered a righteous man. And yet, the Lord saw fit to allow Satan to test him. And through it all, we see several things revealed. The first one is that Job had did have righteousness, but he still had pride that needed to be dealt with. There was more humility for him to taste. There was more humility for him to taste. And in the revelation of the pride that was deep within him, the Lord comes to him and says, you demand I meet you on your terms, but you haven't met me on mine. Consider that. Who are we that we think the Lord will meet us on our terms when we have yet to meet him on his? As we, as we come to a close, turn back with me to Revelation 3. Yet you still have, verse 4, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Walking with the Lord Jesus is reserved for the one who has not soiled his garments with the stains of disobedience. And again, it is to the one who conquers, that is, to the one who walks in faithful obedience, that will receive the inheritance of life with Christ. But here's the beauty of, of all that. Today is a new day. Faithfulness is not bound up in a prayer you prayed five, ten years ago. Faithfulness is the choice today to look at Jesus and say, you are the Christ. I will follow you. And in that, today is the day of salvation. 
Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day of grace poured out where you are no longer marked for your lip service or for your refusal to obey him. But in genuinely repenting, you are marked by Christ as an obedient son. Let that be true for us today and for all days. Let us confess our weariness, our apathy, our idolatry, and our lack of love. Let us, let us repent like the first son. Again, today we can say, Lord Jesus, I trust you. I trust you. I will obey you. Help me obey. Have mercy on me. May we as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ no longer tolerate the excuses that are born from sin and self, but may we in fully dying to self gladly say yes to all that Jesus commands. His word is clear, church. Let us not disregard it. Let us not be self-deceived into thinking we know better. But in humility and contrition, may we receive, may we receive the word. Let's pray. Father, you are glorious. You rule from heaven above. Your ways are higher. Your thoughts are not like our thoughts. We are too comfortable. We're too complacent. We're too content with earthly trinkets. Lord, forgive me because I know I am a sinner and I rebel according to your ways. And I pray, Father, please forgive me and forgive us as your people. If you've truly called us by your name, Continue the work that you've started. Spirit, move in our midst. Cause us to wake up, to take hold of what has been given, and to repent. Lord, we want to walk in it. You are our everything, and we have nothing outside of you, King Jesus. And so I pray that we would taste and see that you are good. And that you are worthy of being Lord of all. I pray for every single person in this room that we would have the resolve to seek you in your word and to take your word for what it says and to simply obey. And as we commit to that, as we form within ourselves the resolve to obey, you would reveal yourself to us because we want to see you. We are not interested in rote works or dead deeds, but we are interested in seeing your face and in loving you with our obedience. Please, would you do it? It's in the name of Christ Jesus, I pray. Amen.